Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, if you are a cellular and molecular biology geek like me, you're going to love today's podcast. So animal organ cells, they, they all have special needs for rigidity and structure. And there's a cell type called a fibroblast that has an important role in many of these processes. So think about something like wound healing or scar formation. The fibroblast contains this intracellular cocktail of molecules like collagens and, and proteoglycans, fiber, and other matrix proteins that are the basis for, for its function as a fibroblast and for repairing tissue. But this is a razor's edge because you can imagine a fibroblast can become pathogenic and ultimately problematic. In many different contexts, there's injury to organs that leads to changes in cells that transform them from normal functioning cells to cells that can't perform their normal function or maybe do so at a much diminished capacity. And, and we frequently think of this as scar tissue. So, you know, in, in the liver and the heart and other cases, this tissue doesn't work the same way. If you take away a heart cell's ability to contract normally, you affect the heart. And, and scar tissue occurs after injury, like things like a heart attack or chronic blood pressure. And that scar tissue can exacerbate patient decline from other conditions, such as congestive heart failure. So what if there was a clever merging of new technologies, including the ones used in COVID-19 vaccines that could correct damaged heart tissue? So today we're going to talk to Joe Rurick. He's a PhD candidate at Penn Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're going to cover the technology that is covered in his most recent science paper. So welcome to the podcast, Joel. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm glad to have you on. I always like having PhD candidates. So when you say PhD candidate, it means you've been through your, you know, the, the grilling parts of the program and your classes are done, you're wrapping up research. And how far along are you in the program? Exactly. So I have finished the didactic portions of my training and I'm on to full-time research. I have been here for four years now and I'm looking forward to trying to defend my thesis in about a year. That's pretty cool. So what's next after you're done with this? So my plan right now is to pursue postdoc in academics. This is on, on the way towards applying for faculty positions to be a full-time scientist. Yeah, that's cool. And the best part is, is that I bet that this project, in which we'll get to in a second, I bet that this concept that you're working on didn't exist when you started the program. Exactly. I think, <laughs> you know, and we'll start talking about it shortly. It's really exciting because sitting here at Penn, it's a little unique and we get to pull experts in from multiple different domains and kind of compile them into really exciting new technologies. Oh, yeah. So you're at Penn. So are you down the hall from Weissman? I am. Yeah. So uh, we actually have several years of collaboration with Drew, and he's a fantastic scientist and, and collaborator. Well, that explains a lot because and I didn't put two and two together with that until you mentioned that. So that's pretty cool. 
Right. So let's start at the beginning. What is fibrosis and what are some of the major causes and the problems that it contributes to? So fibrosis on the, as a high level overview is, is fairly simple. This is the extracellular matrix or what I think of as the structural scaffolding of the heart. So the heart is comprised of many different things. The cardiomyocytes or the muscle cells of the heart that do the actual contracting. They need to pull against something and they need to sit in some form of structure. And so the extracellular matrix is a very normal, healthy part of the heart that these heart muscle cells sit in and pull against. But in the settings of disease, there's a real shift from a healthy, dynamic, pliable extracellular matrix towards way too much. What we call fibrosis is a real overabundance or accumulation and a stiffening of the matrix. And it can have a lot of downstream effects. You mentioned stiffening of the heart, making it harder to contract, but it also can interrupt the metabolics, the inflammation, the baseline inflammation of the heart, and, and other you know, non-structural type interactions with the other cells in the heart that usually are negative in the long term, in the chronic setting. And fibrosis is in other organs as well. So maybe in the liver. Yeah. So in the liver, it's normally fibrosis is cirrhosis, right? Where you're actually cells are becoming less functional metabolically. Yep. And in the lung, the same thing, you know, the gas exchange doesn't happen as, as easily and as frequently kidney, the glomerulus and other structures can't filter blood appropriately. It's a very common pathology across many organs and many diseases. Yeah, I was really surprised by that from your paper and from the analysis of your paper. I think it affects something like 40% of, well, you tell me, but what how prevalent is this problem? And does it just kind of exacerbate other conditions or does it really, is it really primarily primary causal to many different health conditions? Well, it's an interesting question because it's actually a bit hard to disentangle the fibrosis from its effects versus is it accumulating as downstream of other disease, you know, portions of diseases. So it's a bit complicated in that regard, but we think of it as both causative in terms of pathology and also um, resulting from other disease processes. It certainly doesn't help. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather had a viral infection of the heart and led to significant scarring that gave him really diminished function and ultimately had to have a heart transplant. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what we're looking to to ameliorate and to fix. So when we talk about this this whole area of fibrosis as it occurs in different organs, what are the current therapies for treating it? Sure, so there's there's a number of different inhibitors. These are small molecules. Sometimes there's been a few antibodies, blocking antibodies proposed that help to stop the process from getting out of control. These tend to work quite well in preclinical trials. In clinical trials, they're better than nothing, but we think that you know, it, it's trying to put the brakes on a process that's pretty powerful. And once fibrosis is established, there's nothing on the market or even in early clinical trials to help reverse the fibrosis once it's established. Yeah, so that was really my next question. So this is a one-way street, right? Exactly. That's how we think of it right now. 
Yeah. So the therapies that you've proposed are really cool. They, they, or you've proposed, you've actually performed that integrate a number of different approaches that we'll talk about in a moment, but let's start, let's talk about CAR T cells. And this is something we've covered on the podcast many times in different contexts, but what is a CAR T cell and where have we seen them successfully implemented? Right. So CAR T cells, this, this name CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor. T cells. So the chimeric part refers to a very engineered protein. So in the laboratory, we can design these targeting receptors that essentially tell this T cell, which is a normal part of our adaptive immunity that seeks out and kills very specifically its target cell. And so we engineer these cars to to seek out and find only one cell very specifically across the whole body. In, in the clinic, the CAR-Ts are mainly approved for use in lymphomas and leukemias. So these are blood cancers. They work extremely well for people that have failed first-line therapeutics like chemotherapy and radiation. And they are very good at durable remission in these patients, especially the pediatric population. Yeah, they're really important in the pediatric populations because they don't induce certain other secondary problems that pediatric treatment sometimes can cause. Right. And one of the interesting things about CAR T cells, so just to kind of summarize for the audience, it's Mm -hmm. kind of a way of genetically engineering a cell to produce a surface molecule that makes it like a guided missile. It knows exactly where it's going. And, And well, I shouldn't say that. It knows the cell type it needs to interact with because it has a specific handshake with that cell type and now guides this, this T cell, this normal part of the immune system, to that specific cell type. And it, it, it has been, as you mentioned, has been used in, uh, in blood cancers. Poseida Therapeutics, we did, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but they've been using the same type of approach to d- deliver specific compounds to prostate cancer cells, for instance. That's one of the episodes in our series. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And and I think what's really exciting is there's hundreds of new cars in the pipeline of development, and it's going to really expand in terms of scope and what we're able to treat. Yeah, it's pretty exciting stuff. So your team did this in a little bit different way. And we'll talk about that on the other side of the break, where you're really merging some of the newest technologies to make a potent way to address the problem of fibrosis. So we're speaking with Joel Rurick. He's a PhD candidate at Penn Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. This is Collabra's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back with you in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and you should check out Collabra's suite of tools that can make your laboratory more efficient and help curate the data that's present in your laboratory. So let's talk about a question that I left out. So 
we talk about normal functioning somatic cells or fibroblasts that are there because they're important structural parts of cells or of tissues. What makes a fibroblast that's normal different from one that's problematic? Right. So this is really central to what we're doing. There are many different types of cells in the heart aside from the cardiomyocytes. And we're using the heart as a typical organ in a way that we think this biology extends to other major organs in the disease settings that's relevant to them. But essentially, a fibroblast is responsible for this extracellular matrix. And in normal, healthy states, it's very dynamic. And it's constantly making and maintaining this extracellular matrix, of which the other functional cells of the organ are are embedded in and, and rely on. And so in the setting of disease, and for us, we use a high blood pressure model. So this mimics a type of chronic heart disease, like heart failure. These cells, which start as, as kind of a loosely similar cell type in terms of fibroblast, they then become probably four or five different cell states or different flavors of fibroblasts. And only a very few of them, in terms of number, are very pathogenic. And they're the ones that are ultimately responsible for the fibrosis or this excess accumulation of extracellular matrix. And what's happening at the you know biochemical molecular level to make them a fibroblast? What are they accumulating right. or how are they coordinating structure to make themselves this kind of fibroblast that's or, or fibroblast that's associated with the scar tissue? Right. So we call these activated fibroblasts, and they have been studied in quite great depth over the last several decades. And there's a there's an intermingling of different cell stimuli coming from multiple different places. So one is biomechanical strain or stress, so excess stress on the heart. One another source of signal is ischemia and reactive species from dying cardiomyocytes after myocardial infarction. TGF-beta and interleukin-11 are known potent players in the activation of fibroblasts and other immune components. You mentioned earlier that there was a viral infection causing you know, heart damage. That's a known pathway to activate these fibroblasts and form fibrosis. No, very good. Yeah, it's important to have a good idea of the, the, the organic basis of this. Exactly. So now let's go back to the CAR T cells. Now, in a normal CAR T cell environment, which it sounds funny to say that because it's such new stuff, but you, you take a cell type out of a, a patient and you engineer that cell to have this surface antigen that targets like lock and key to a specific cell type and then put those back in. That's normally how it's done or they've had other ones that have been stripped of surface antigens to be a kind of a generic cell type that has more. Anyway, the bottom line is, is that the problem and the, one of the drawbacks to CAR T cell therapies is that you need to start the first step by this removal of cells from the body and then and then identifying the cell types you want and then modifying them and then putting them back in. So it adds tremendous expense and hassle to the to the process. And please correct me if I'm wrong on this. I don't do this every day. No, that's that's absolutely correct. Yeah, it's it's a very expensive and and tailored process. So every patient that receives CAR T therapy, their own T cells get modified. This is as it currently stands. There is a vast amount of work being done to 
broaden this process and streamline it, make it more efficient and cost effective. But what we have done is is kind of sidestep all of that manufacturing process. <laughs> and the, well, how did you do it? So we teamed up with Drew Weissman, who's an RNA expert in, in developing therapeutic RNA for both vaccines and for other indications. So we have essentially taken what is a, the COVID-19 vaccine, which is mRNA, encoding for us our custom CAR, and then that's encapsulated in a lipid nanoparticle. That is exactly what, we, what I have received as the COVID-19 vaccine. We know is, is very manufacturable and dosable. The step that we have added is a targeting antibody on the exterior shell of the lipid nanoparticle. And this is what tells T cells to take up and express the RNA for the car. Yeah, so, so just to kind of recap this, you're using the same technology that was used in the COVID vaccine. And, and Drew yeah. Weissman, just for what it's worth, he was with Catalin Carrico many years ago, like 2000, in, throughout the 90s and then 2000s, early 2000s, worked on developing the coding of mRNA so that it would not cause collateral effects and that would be serve as an effective template to create antigens in vivo. So in your muscle cells, exactly. you create the COVID vaccine antigen, the spike protein antigen. Now you can use that same technology. And in this case, they're taking that, they're creating, they're giving the information in that lipid nanoparticle to change the T cell but then putting a coating on the outside, an antibody that directs it to the T cell. So this way that that mRNA message that's going to be translated into a protein that's going to give the cell new function is going to the T cell specifically. <laughs> so, so, exactly. is, so I recap that correctly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. I frankly am quite amazed that this actually works. <laughs> well, this is like the weirdest Venn diagram of really cool technologies. Right. Where, you know, right at that little intersection. That's why, and I want to be so clear about this because the listener needs to be conversant with what this is because this is so cool. And we'll, we'll talk about this maybe more at the end. So you're using a lipid nanoparticle to target an mRNA to a T cell. And Correct. now all of a sudden this T cell can specifically go to cardiac fibroblasts. Now, how, how, does, how does it know? What is that mRNA encoding? Right. So the mRNA encodes our custom CAR. This is the receptor on the surface of the T cell that now targets the T cell into the heart and into these spaces of injury where the fibroblasts have activated. They are now expressing a different suite of proteins than the homeostatic or normal fibroblasts. So we are now selectively killing with these CAR T cells only the pathogenic fibroblasts in the heart after injury. It has no effect if the heart is not injured, and there's no real, that we know of yet, a downstream effect outside of the injured heart. Yeah, so that but so it only removes these these pathogenic fibroblasts or the things that we would colloquially refer to as scar tissue. Exactly. Yeah, and, and we're at this point we're a little unclear exactly how the mechanism works because what we're doing is we're killing these problematic cells and then 
this is allowing through some mechanisms the remodeling of the extracellular space likely by the rest of the homeostatic fibroblasts as well as other infiltrating immune cells such as macrophages which are really good at cleaning up environments and returning them back to their healthier state and i should emphasize that this all this work was done in mouse in these first trials but what were the results Correct. So, you know, the first thing we had to show is that we could actually uh, engineer these T cells because T cells don't really like to express any form of foreign genetic material or RNA. And so first we demonstrated that what we can do is we could take these LMPs or lipid nanoparticles that contain the RNA, we can directly inject them into mice and that will form for a brief, you know, a couple of days, maybe three days, a targeted T-cell against activated fibroblasts. And so what we then moved on to after showing that they have the capability of expressing the CAR in T-cells in the mouse, then we moved on to a injury model. So this model is essentially a high blood pressure chronic model that induces scar formation in the heart, just like we see in humans over time. Then we administer just a single dose of these LMPs. They'll make a transient wave of T cells that are targeting and eliminating the activated fibroblasts. Again, about three days. Then those T cells will return to normal. The extracellular matrix will get remodeled within the hearts. And then we demonstrate the histology. So looking at the actual tissue itself, that the fibrosis has been resolved. And more importantly, we look via echocardiography, which is an ultrasound picture of the heart. This is over time. So we get a movie of the heart and you know, can watch how it contracts, how freely it can move and relax. And we show that one dose of these lipid nanoparticles is sufficient to restore the mouse heart back to its baseline or, or normal wild type uninjured controls. And so we see both in systolic, which is the pumping, you know, the forceful contraction of the heart, as well as diastolic or the relaxation of the heart. Both parameters have returned essentially to normal, which is incredibly exciting. Yeah, this is really cool because in the introduction, I talked about scar tissue in the heart as still serving some sort of structural component, although not pumping. And what you're telling me is that you can remove these if you and if you remove them molecularly, then you can have other types of events that cause remodeling of the cardiac tissue to restore full function. That is exactly what we have seen so far, which is really crazy. I mean, it's it's somehow specific for only the acu- excess accumulation of fibrosis. And what we've done is by eliminating these these most pathogenic of cells of fibroblasts, it really allows the homeostatic mechanisms, this kind of balance of production and remodeling of extracellular matrix to regain the pri- you know, priority in the heart. And so we're not eliminating all, fib- you know, all extracellular matrix. We're really just almost surgically taking out the extra and leaving the normal. Yeah, like it knows what has to be there. Right. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's it's oh. quite amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, you know, in, in the series, I hate keep going back to the series, but we've done this for seven years now. And so there's a lot of different examples of this, like Michael Levin, who I talked with from Tufts, a lot of examples of this about how how cells know where they are and, and how right. organs and tissues kind of know their neighbor and and have the ability to regenerate and correct problems that they sense. So this fits right in there. So what about cases where there's a lot of scarring, where how, how does that impair a CAR T cell's ability to even get to the places it needs to work? Right. So we know that these larger, you know, bulkier scars are still cellularized. So they still have fibroblasts in them. And we, we're not quite certain how the therapy will respond. There may be a scenario where a certain scar is, is quote, too far gone or too established to be, um, you know, functionally resolved. But we're not entirely sure yet. That's something we're actively working on with different models as well as large animal models. This is in preparation towards heading towards early clinical trials, you know, where our predominant goal is addressing exactly this question. You know, you know the first and foremost is, is, is this safe? Um, and then the second question is, is it effective for more chronic type, you know, really dense scars? What's really exciting about the technology that we propose is that we can dose it as many times as we need. You know, I have received three vaccinations so far with mRNA and we'll get more in the future likely. And, and so, you know, I don't have any ill effects from that. So there's not much in terms of formulation that we think inhibits repeat dosing as needed. And maybe we can start to remodel these big, dense scars from the outside in. Yeah, and then T cells are terminally differentiated, so they right. uh, have a finite life. They, they, they once they're once they've been transformed with this and become the CAR T cells themselves, they have a finite half life. Because we use mRNA, we only get a very transient wave of expression of the CAR, and after about three days or even two days these T cells will return to normal. And then, like you just mentioned, these T cells have a finite lifespan. And so we're not continually targeting fibrosis forever. Yeah, but the nice part is, is you get, as you mentioned, you go get another dose if there's still impairment of function that can be ascribed to fibroblasts or pathogenic fibroblasts. That's really cool. So are there groups that are taking parallel tracks? A friend of mine wants to know if they're working on livers. Absolutely. So that is something that we're working on with collaborators right now, and we're very excited, but it's a little bit early to tell. Yeah. Well, what are the next steps for the cardiac project? So if in terms of cardiac, we really want to show safety profile. We have done this in the mouse, but as you well know, and the audience knows very well, the mouse is not a human. And so we need to demonstrate that this therapy is safe for humans. So the next steps for us are, are, are translating this to large animal models and then eventually to early proof of concept in clinical trials. And, and we'll hope that, uh, you know, we think that the efficacy will also follow. So if you had to take a crystal ball guess here, how far are, are we from the first human clinical trials? Well, we're hoping for about three to five years to start the first trials. There's some, some engineering that needs to happen, and then there's some, some large animal studies that need to happen, both of which are currently underway, both in our lab and also with our collaborators. And what's been really exciting for me as a, 
you know, more on the academic side of life than on the, the therapy development side, although it's really fascinating is, you know, we're really trying to understand some biology. And one of the cool, you know, side effects, if you will, is that we can use this as a tool to start understanding what fibrosis really means in the disease context. And if you take out the fibrosis, is there other pathology that's still there that's latent that will need to be addressed with other types of, of therapies that are either co-administered or taken at the same time? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. But, you know, something's going to get you, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you take away one problem and another one emerges. But the, exactly. but the beauty of this, though, for me in, in thinking about this is that in the past, when I've talked about CAR T-cell therapy, which I've just been so excited about as it's been per, as proposed for use on aggressive cancers like glioblastoma mm -hmm. and other types of things, that is that I imagined a day, and I actually had this discussion with the, the guest, that it, we may come a day where you go to a CAR T-cell therapy clinic that's almost like a Jiffy Lube, where you pull in, they pull your cells out, engineer them, and put them back in, and it's 75 bucks and go home and be well. Where because it's it's such a uh, I don't want to say simple in a bad way, but it's such a straightforward therapy and such a straightforward approach that if we could get some parts of it to be a little more generic, and that's what you've accomplished with the lipid nanoparticle mRNA. Just like we you know pulled into a tent in Jacksonville to get my COVID shot, I could I could probably get this at a CVS. If I had a prescription from my physician that said, you've got some evidence of scar tissue, you know, you're showing some evidence of, of diminished heart capacity or cirrhosis or whatever, you know, go in and get the shot. And so it modularizes treatment for really severe disease that currently doesn't have a treatment. I, I just love that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited about that aspect. And, you know, I think it really democratizes CAR T therapy, as you probably well know, you know, the current. Uh, recipients are very fortunate and they have to have a lot of resources behind them to actually get this therapy and it's not really accessible especially outside of you know the western you know developed countries and so what's really exciting is is we can mass mass manufacture this therapy and we can preserve it and dose it anywhere in the world hopefully yeah just like the covid vaccine you can exactly. take this to places where people normally don't have the access to medical care and it, exactly. it also but it, it 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 really lowers the price point and but this is what's so exciting to me is that when we talk about cancer therapies or in this case heart or you know other types of treatments for fibrosis there are so many people that are affected by this for something so something like 40 percent in one of the reviews exactly and, and and if we could get this through and and, and i think what my, my way i always like to conclude is for those of you who have family members who are suffering from these issues, there's hope on the horizon. So you, so, and the reason that's so exciting is because it means, you know, tell them about this, share this story, tell them about this technology, because this is something that can affect them if they can make it that far. So, so yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I know a lot of sick people who just gave up. And right. I think knowing that there is a treatment on the horizon, if you can get there, maybe is something that just the hope alone can help them surf through a couple of years and maybe be able to receive it. So th that's why this is so cool. So congratulations, Joel. Really nice stuff. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, and just like you said, I'm very hopeful.
<laughs> I am too. And the best part is, is, you know, like we started with is I've said, I bet that at the beginning of your project, you didn't know you would be doing this. You, you have absolutely no idea what you will ultimately do in a faculty position. Exactly. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's, it's equal parts terrifying and exciting. Yeah, but that's good. I tell all my students, I'm like, you guys are alive at the best time to do this. And I wish I was at the beginning of my career because this is where like the innovators are going to grab it and the people who can do what what was done in, in your laboratory, you know, you're combining the best of the new technologies to create new solutions. And, and maybe exactly. you should give a little shout out to the lab and your PI and some of the folks who participated in the project. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this type of thing does not happen alone. There's big teams that are involved and and you know, as, as the saying goes, we stand on the shoulder of giants. You know, I'm happy to talk about this work, but there were many people involved. Uh, my mentor, Jonathan Epstein, who's a professor here at Penn, Drew Weissman, uh, who, as you, we talked about earlier, is an RNA expert. You know, both of our laboratories were critical. Uh, Haig Agajanian, who was key to starting this whole concept, and Hamida Parhiz, who works as a group leader in Drew's lab and has her own faculty position now, who's, who's really working on exciting things. In terms of, you know, we demonstrate RNA delivery to T-cells for the, you know, the therapy of fibrosis, but that's not the only T-cell that, or that's not the only cell in the body that can take up LMPs, and that's not the only RNA that can be expressed. And so I think you can let your imagination run wild in terms of, of which cells we want to address and what we want to do in those cells. And I think there's, we're, we're really standing at the top of a watershed looking down at just what seems like an almost infinite number of possibilities that is really exciting. Uh, extremely well put. I won't try, to, won't try to put any additional shine on that. So if people want to learn more about this, where, they, where can they follow you on social media and maybe the Epstein Lab? Absolutely. So my Twitter handle is probably the best way to keep track of me. It's at devbioacademic. And then also our laboratory is John Epstein Lab. Yeah, very good. So follow those on Twitter and I'll also include those in the show notes. So Joel Rurick, thank you so much for contacting me. And after your Dr. Joel Rurick, if you want to get back in touch with me about your next big breakthroughs, give me a holler and we'll talk about them again. Thank you very much for a great episode. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. And for the listeners, again, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. This is the kind of technology that combines the best of the best. What are we doing with this lipid nanoparticle delivery of mRNA to specific cell types to give them new programming to solve problems? I mean, this is amazing stuff. And I hope you share this podcast episode and the information within with the people you care about, because this is the kind of thing that gives us hope and helps us correct the misinformation that's out there about what these technologies really are. Because the thing that will stand between their innovation and their deployment is the false information that will be given by the folks out there who, for some reason, find these kinds of technologies and genetic engineering unacceptable. So share this kind of information. Thank you for listening. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration.
Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.